Hello and welcome to the Demystifying Media podcast from the University of Oregon. I'm Damien Radcliffe, the Carolyn S. Chambers Professor of Journalism, and in this series I talk to leading media researchers and practitioners, both about their work and the trends they see shaping the future of their industry. My guest today is Mandy Jenkins, a JSK Fellow at Stanford University and formerly the first Editor-in-Chief at Storyful. In that role, Mandy oversaw a team that worked with newsrooms to find, verify and publish eyewitness media and social insights from around the world. Prior to this, she was the managing editor of Project Thunderdome, a newsroom which supported digital projects at over 200 local newspapers across the US, and earlier roles included coordinating the Off the Bus Citizen Journalism Program at the Huffington Post, as well as digital positions at the DC-based local news startup TBD, Cincinnati Inquirer, and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. She serves on the board of directors of the American Society of News Editors, is president of the Online News Association's Board of Directors, and this week she's been at the University of Oregon as a journalist in residence. Mandy, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, I've given a very long and detailed <laughs> resume there, but I think one of the things that's really interesting um, kind of going over your career history is the way in which you have kind of ridden these kind of trends in digital journalism and, and digital news over the past sort of uh, 10, 15 years. Was that, has that been a deliberate strategy? At some points, it's been a deliberate strategy, and at other points, it's completely been an accident. Uh, but, but it's been happy accidents along the way. I mean, when I first started my career, I certainly did not go to school thinking that this was what I was going to do, because in when I started college in 1998, uh, this was not at all something that anyone was talking about. But in going out and starting my career in digital and getting to see changes happen just so quickly in the newsroom... And because I didn't know what it was supposed to be like, because I hadn't been there a long time, it was, uh, I think, a little bit more natural for me to just kind of keep changing and keep evolving. Now, at other points, I certainly was a bit more strategic about that. Like uh, when I switched over into social media in 2008, that was very much like, A, my newsroom at the time, the Cincinnati Inquirer, my husband and I both worked there. There were lots of layoffs happening. It's like, what can I do? to make myself indispensable. I need to, to fill a niche here that's not being filled. And so getting the newspaper into social media and taking that role on was both like trying to get a little bit of job insurance, but it was also great to add a whole new area into my, uh, my wheelhouse. And really the rest of my career was shaped by what was honestly just kind of a calculated decision to not get laid off at the time. <laughs> What were some of the, the the challenges with kind of trying those new things? I mean, what's interesting is a number of those examples that I've highlighted were doing things that really hadn't been done before. Right, right. Now, and I've, I've, I've said to students a lot this week that I've actually never had a job that someone did before me, which is great. And it's also scary because it's, it's wonderful that you don't have to live up to what someone else did before. But it also means that you kind of have to constantly prove why you're there and why why you're getting paid why your job is worth it, especially if you're in newsrooms that have been contracting and they, they've seen people walk out the door. You have to prove that you have a reason to be there. And it's it's challenging to be in those roles because so often I'm just learning it as I go. Nobody knows what they're doing, but you're kind of supposed to pretend that you do. And I'm not really good at pretending that I do. I will ask a lot of questions. I will seek out advice from other people in the industry that are doing similar things. Sometimes people don't respond well to that, but for me, that's been how I've had to learn things on the job. I mean, when I started as a social media editor, I'd had a Twitter account for like three months. And I was like, well, I've never made a strategy before. I don't know anything about any of this stuff, but I'll just, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll make it happen. 
And I think that's how it's been in every job. I hadn't been an editor-in-chief before when I got to Storyful. I was like, well, <laughs> we'll figure this out. We'll, we'll see what they need, and I'll make some mistakes, and I'll learn from those mistakes. And I'm sure that the next job I have will also be one that probably no one has ever done before, and I will have to learn how to do whatever it is that I'm going to be doing again. And how do you bring people with you on that journey then when you yourself are also finding your own feet and feeling your way through? Well, I think a big part of that is, is finding allies pretty early on in any environment, whether that's in the community or it's in the newsroom itself. Getting people who are interested in the same things, and even if they're not in the same department or even the same, have the same exact interests, you know, they have, they care about the same mission and talking with them, getting their feedback bringing in their ideas, knowing that like, look, I'm not just here to tell you what to do or to do my thing and not involve you, especially maybe they've been in a newsroom a long time. I think it's really important to get their perspectives, bring that in, know that like you're listening to what they have to say and to their experience. I think that that really helps in bringing everybody along for the ride and letting them get wins out of that too. And for for some of our younger listeners, perhaps students who may find themselves very much in this this position where they walk into a newsroom, maybe leading change in, in an area that they are expected to understand as digital natives, how do you bring kind of more skeptical people with you who perhaps also are, are often older and more experienced? Right. I think it's a twofold thing that has to happen there. One, like I said earlier, you really have to ask a lot of questions. People don't want to feel like their experience doesn't matter. And they do have a lot that they can teach. And I think that that's an easy thing to walk into a newsroom and to kind of feel like you have to really fake it until you make it. And on one hand, that's true. But that doesn't mean that you need to act like you don't need any advice. You don't need to know more things. Like ask people what they do and really get an understanding of their work. They probably know the community better. They know how the newsroom works better. And it's in that exchange of information that the real familiarity and the trust can be built. And honestly, and in teaching new skills, pushing new initiatives, you've got to tell people what it's going to do for them. What are they going to get out of this? What are their audiences going to get out of this? I know when I was starting out as a social media editor at the Inquirer, you know, I'm working with a lot of reporters. Some of them have been doing the job for 20, 25 years. Zero interest in getting on Twitter. But getting them trained in it and sort of showing them very early on in those days of, like, look at how people respond to this. You've never really gotten to see this before. And rewarding, like, little wins, like when they'd get a lot of retweets on something and they would not want to admit it, but, oh, actually, that felt really good. Like, I like getting all these people responding to me, and they really like in my story, and I'm not used to hearing that. Uh, I think that when they see, saw those little wins, but also that like, I would point out those wins or bring those up in news meetings, that kind of thing really can win people over. And honestly, a lot of those people are now like huge personalities on Twitter, which is hilarious to me in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> and so in this past year, you've been taking sort of a step back from that kind of um, front row newsroom role to uh, take up this fellowship at Stanford. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that has entailed and how you have used your time? Yeah, it's uh, being a, a JSK fellow is just a, a huge opportunity. And it's, it's something I've known I wanted to do for years. I just had to wait until I had been further far enough in my career to actually be able to apply. And it's really one of those things where getting the time away from the newsroom, from the day-to-day, uh, is really, you use that time how you how you want. And it's also like you're going to get back what you, what you put into that. And everyone uses it in really different ways. And I know for me, 
it was good to take a break. I was definitely a little bit burned out when I got into the program, uh, not only just from work, but from news itself. It's exhausting. It can be really depressing sometimes. Getting away from that was helpful, but it also a chance to, to really dig in on a topic that really interested me with my research, but in taking classes and things that I didn't know very well. Like I've been taking classes in uh, business and in management, entrepreneurship, product design, and those things have been really, really great for me to, to, to really learn more about different aspects of the business. I think I'm going to go back into the industry and, and be a lot more versed in uh, sort of the business strategy side of things, which is something I was kind of faking it till I made it in the past. And now I at least know a little bit more real things about that. And so how, how do you see some of those kind of interdisciplinary skills, both shaping the, perhaps the future of your career, but also perhaps looking back on perhaps some of the kind of culture change programs and initiatives that you have led and enable you to perhaps view them differently? Yeah, you know, the, the classes I've taken, and especially in the business school, I think have been, for one thing, they've, they've made me feel good that some of the decisions I've made in the past, and I didn't, I was kind of going with my gut because I didn't go to business school, of like finding that those were validated. That like, actually, yeah, that was a good strategy. This is what they're teaching in business school. I, I don't have the worst business instincts. That's good to know. Um, but also, I've been able to look back and see things that either that I've done or that the companies I was a part of did that you can sort of pinpoint what went wrong. Like, you know, I've been a part of startups that have failed. And in taking these business classes, it's actually really been helpful to sort of see, like, I can now get a better idea of why that happened. Uh, not all of them are fair, but, like, there were certainly problems that I didn't see because of my position at the time that now I can see better because I know more about the strategy and why it didn't work. And I think that that's really going to be helpful for me going forward because I intend to still be in kind of management positions where I'm probably going to have to manage budgets. I'm going to have to evaluate success. And, you know, I've learned a lot more about that in my year at Stanford. That's great. And then alongside this, you've also undertaken a challenge or you kind of come in with a with a big idea or big project that you kind of get to develop. It was interesting you said that many of your cohort changed their minds about kind of what they want to do. But you've had an idea pretty much from the get go about what you wanted to explore. Right. Now, I pitched I pitched my idea. It's almost two years ago that I pitched it and I've stuck with it all the way through. And I'm really glad that I did. Um, so what I went to went to the program with was saying that I really wanted to study consumers of disinformation because it's storyful. I've been sort of on the other side of that, studying the people who are making it, studying the systems that spread it, which is very helpful. But I think there's a lot of attention on that. And there's not as much attention on sort of why someone might believe a fake story in the first place. So I've devoted my time at Stanford to finding people who fit into that, um, getting out and actually having very in-depth, good relationships with them where I can really get a sense of who they are and why they believe what they believe, why they make the choices that they've made and what they trust, what they don't trust. And it's been really enriching for me, even aside from the information I'm getting from them, it's really changed the way that I see the world having had these interviews. And I'm really hoping that what I've gotten out of it, A, that I can actually finish a report in time for my fellowship to end and get it out in front of the news industry. But I'm hoping that they're going to see, too, that we don't, as an industry, we don't know very much about this part of our audience. And I hope that this will help them figure out a little bit more about how to talk about the problem of disinformation and how to potentially reach different people. 
And so how did you reach the people that you were researching? Um, I did it in three different ways, and it really kind of depended on on the person. So some people I found on social media just through doing some keyword searches, hashtags, seeing them coming up in stories. And that was, um, I would reach out to them and I got a lot of dead ends on that because obviously people are creeped out when you send them messages and they don't know you. But some of them, we were able to start a dialogue and actually uh, go off and eventually get to the interview phase. But that can take a long time to build that up. Others found out about my project through other people and really like the concept of talking about maybe why they don't have a great relationship with mainstream media. And they all... They all have their reasons, and they really wanted to tell me about those. So I had a couple people who volunteered to do that. And those were really positive interactions because they were all in on that part of it. But the most successful ones in most of the interviews I had were referrals of people who knew what I was working on. And they said, I have this aunt, this friend, this neighbor who believes this or does this, and I think you should really talk to them about that. And, and that was an easy end, too, because this person's like, oh, okay, well, this person vouches for you, so we can have a, a conversation a little bit faster and easier because of that. I think it might surprise some people, though, just how long and detailed these conversations have been, you know, particularly for journalists who, in many cases, you know, we're, we're in a rush, we're on deadline, we kind of go in with what we need to get from a source and then, then we leave. And you've had very long, detailed sit-downs in some instances. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the interviews themselves are anywhere from two hours to like four, six hours, really. I'm letting them talk as long as they want and as much time as they have. And they're all in person, because so I think it's really important to sort of see how someone lives and going to their homes. Um, but it takes a long time just to get to that point. You know, that was a lot of phone conversations before that, lots of texting, uh, lots of just going back and forth so that they can get a sense of whether or not they could trust me. Because yeah, I'm coming to their house. I'm seeing their pets, their kids, where they live. They want to make sure I'm not a serial killer understandable. Yeah. And what have been some of the the key lessons that you have, have learned from those those interviews? I think that the thing that's been most startling is just how how much people have really good reasons for making these these choices in, in ways that we, we probably would not assume in the industry. Um, you know, that they're they have real concerns about the power of the media and especially how the media wants to shape what they believe. They're very aware of that kind of manipulation and in ways that I don't think people have been in the past. So that's been really interesting to see. Uh, the role of technology and sort of of social media really can't be downplayed either. People are overwhelmed by technology, they're overwhelmed by choice of news. There's just so much around them and they don't necessarily have the time or the skills to sort through and see like what's real, what's not. Is this source legitimate or isn't it? Is this story opinion or not. And um, and really that weird blend of opinion and news is something that every single interview has mentioned of that they don't like. It Can really they differentiate? clouds it. Can they differentiate between the two? No, they really have a hard time differentiating. And, and often, I mean, I can understand why. A lot of these people are especially talking about cable news where they're like, I don't know which things were just facts and which things were this person's opinion. And it's not always crystal clear. It's not even clear to me as a journalist reading these things sometimes. And it comes off to them as just bias. It comes off as skewed. It comes off as maybe they don't even know what they're talking about. Maybe they don't even know the facts. And that's uh, really off-putting to people. And I, I don't think that um, people necessarily think that uh, in the industry, that, that that might be something that pushes people away. It wins some people over, but it pushes some people away. 
So at the end of, of this process, are you looking to make some recommendations for newsrooms of things that perhaps they might want to do differently? I don't know if I'm really going to make recommendations because what I'm hoping is they'll just read these and see where it might fit into what they're doing. Um, I mean, I think some recommendations might naturally come out of that, but I really don't want to be prescriptive because I can't generalize these interviews. There's not enough of them to really generalize it, but I want these stories to resonate with people, to understand that, you know, these individuals live in their communities. They are very smart people. They're very engaged. They're people that we haven't entirely lost in a lot of cases. They're, they're, we can bring them back into the fold of interacting in their community and interacting with media. And I think there's going to be different lessons for different kinds of newsrooms out of that. So I want to try to avoid being as prescriptive as I can, just so that they might see themselves in that a little bit more than me just telling them what they're supposed to see. It sounds as if you're quite positive, though, about uh, particularly the way you just described some of the interviewees as we've not lost them to news yet, but we're going to have to work hard to kind of bring them back into the fold. Definitely. Because, I mean, these are all well-educated people. Um, they're interested in what's going on in the world, but they they don't trust the way that we've been doing it. So, I mean, some are, are a little more lost to us than others, but I think that it's it's doable. It's just that it's going to take a ways to get that trust back. And that's really what a lot of this boils down to is that that lack of connection. We can rebuild that connection, but it's going to it's going to be difficult. And I think in a lot of cases, it needs to happen more at a local level than at anything that cable news or that national newspapers are really going to be able to do. And then presumably um, through this kind of time at Stanford, because you've been able to sort of take a step back from the day to day, that's also given you a fresh perspective on kind of other things that are happening across the industry, both kind of at a local level and elsewhere. So what are some of the things that have caught your eye during this past year and perhaps you know excite you about where we might be moving forward? I'm really excited about kind of this renewed focus on local news from from the larger industry. And having started in local news myself and caring quite a bit about it, that's been something that's really been underlined in my research as being something that's missing from a lot of people's lives. And I'm really encouraged by how much you know, funders, the tech platforms, um, kind of other like big thinkers in journalism are now looking at local. They've been thinking about these other big picture things for a while and the funding's gone to other places, but now it's coming back to local. And, and it feels some, like a couple of years ago, no one was having that right. conversation. I mean, that was, you know, I, I've done some research in that that space. And also, like you started in, in local media. And I felt that sort of 2015, 2016, no one was really talking about this. And now, like almost every week, there's a flurry of new, really interesting, detailed reports or funding propositions that are coming forward. And that's great to see. Yeah, it's really been great to see that Locals not being ignored anymore. For a long time, it's just was considered deeply unsexy. Like no one wants to fund that because, you know, how, how big of an impact can you make? Um, and, and it requires a lot of people to rethink, you know, what impact even means. It's like, yeah, maybe you can't scale this to be a, a huge project that crosses the country. Maybe you can. But uh, I'm very much of the opinion that something that really works locally doesn't have to scale, that you've already done what you need to do. It doesn't have to become a national or international phenomenon, it's fine and actually maybe preferable for it to be a, a local success. And I'm, I'm excited to see more people talking about that, especially because we've spent the last few years as an industry so focused on trust and focused on disinformation that now 
I'm hoping that people will see how much those things are interconnected. If they get nothing else out of my report, I hope that they get that out of there, that these are not different problems, that the loss of local news and loss of trust and the rise of disinformation are very related and intertwined issues. And do you think that's why this kind of the unsexy sector of local has started to have a bit of a, a, a renaissance? I think that that's one element of it, especially when people are focused on trust. Uh, the studies on news deserts, I think, have also really kind of freaked some people out when they really get a, a look at places that used to have news and that really don't anymore, that they just have uh, these zombie newspapers that barely exist. Uh, I think that that's really shaken some people up. And especially in this context of like political coverage, because that's important to a lot of people, that they know that there's huge swaths of the country that they actually know nothing about. And a lot of it's because there's not any media there. And so and aside from local, uh, what are the other things that have caught your eye? I, I'm also really interested in in just seeing the embrace of, of new technology in places where you don't necessarily expect it. I've been kind of a, a naysayer about things like, like VR and AR for years. I mean, I think they're cool. I think it's very cool. I just don't know how accessible that is. And I still don't necessarily know how accessible that is, but... I've seen some really interesting moves in that world to to use it like for an actual purpose of storytelling, of using the technology in a way that is intrinsic to the story and not just as a cool thing to do. And I think there's a lot more research going into that, more experimentation that's bringing it into the core of creating empathy uh, for subjects. And that, that's something I've really have learned a lot about at Stanford, because actually right across from where JSK's offices are is the Virtual Human Interaction Lab, where they have a lot of these projects. You can go in and check them out, and it's, it's pretty cool. It's made me a little bit more of a believer in that, which has been, uh, you know, kind of a, a reckoning for me. Um, I think I, I'm also really excited, too, just about uh, the focus on collaborative journalism and people coming together, working together around different projects. You know, one of the other fellows in my program is the director of ICIJ, who did the Paradise Papers, and like learning from her sort of how all of these newsrooms across the world were able to, to work collaboratively on a project for years. And in secret. And in secret. Like, how did they keep a secret with that many journalists knowing about it? It's just mind blowing to me. And, and, and just hearing kind of how that happened and, and seeing how even on smaller scales, like uh, my friends at Pop-Up Newsroom, build lots of small collaborations around election coverage and fighting disinformation in countries all over the world. And that's bringing media outlets together. It's bringing the platforms into it. And I think there's so much we can do that's not duplicating and it's combining our resources, combining our strengths. I think that the more that we look at collaborations, the more we can build something bigger out of lots of small parts, especially as newsrooms are not able to to do everything themselves anymore because of cuts or whatever, that, that that collaboration can be a really strong and really important path forward. And have these been some of the key messages that you've wanted to impart whilst you've been visiting us in Oregon this week? I see those. And also, I think, and, and talking to the students especially, a thing that I always stress, and I've done this for years, uh, is I really want journalism students to know that there's a lot of options out there for them, that it's a very scary industry to go into. And I'm they have to really, A, they have to really want it, but also that there's a lot of options for them if they're looking carefully. Like there's not going to be a lot of the same traditional jobs that there used to be, or maybe in some of the traditional places, and they're not going to be able to walk out and get their dream job on day one. 
but that there's lots of opportunities out there, whether it's in local news, it's in other aspects of the newsroom that may not be in reporting or editing in the traditional sense as they know it, but where their skills will really be applicable and where they might have career growth faster, like in community engagement, audience, like that kind of work is not something they think about when they think about journalism. But I really hope that they will think about that now, especially if that's something that's interesting to them. And how do students best equip themselves then for that future? I think a lot of it is, is for one thing, learning a really wide range of skills now of whether that's um, learning how to use a CMS and web production, starting their own blog, starting their own website, even if it's just as a means to get their work out there, but also learning how to set up a site. I did that myself um, when I was an early in my career. I set up a website just for the purposes of learning how to do that and learning kind of how what goes into that. I think uh, also it's important for them to be learning how to wisely use social media. They're all, you know, know how to use social media as people, but learning how to do it to tell a story, to get feedback from people, uh, to project uh, the, the image of a professional that they would like for a newsroom to see of them. Uh, and those all are, are skills they can definitely hone while they're in college, and they can do it on their own, too. That isn't necessarily something that they have to be doing in a classroom, uh, that iterating and trying things out and being able to talk about how they've done that to a future employer in a cover letter is going to be huge. Now, your time at Stanford is shortly going to be coming to an end. We oh, saw... don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> we saw this week the next cohort has been announced, and you said that was a kind of watershed moment for you and many of your many of your friends. Um, can you give us a sense of what the future might hold for you? Uh, my time at Stanford has taught me a few things about what I want to do next. And I know for one, I found that I, I honestly don't miss day-to-day news as much as I thought I might. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's necessarily what I'm going to go back and do right away. Um, I, I definitely know too that I want to do something that's going to benefit local news in some way. I, I've felt very removed from that but being at Stanford I've really had a renewed interest in that and seeing too that there's so much more effort being put toward it I'm like yes I want to join this battle I want to go do what I can so I think that that's going to be really dictating what I do next excellent well we we will uh we'll follow you on Twitter and elsewhere to kind of find out what you're up to next uh i hope you've enjoyed this discussion today Uh, do keep an eye on our website for mandy's guest lecture where she talks more about her career path and her research work at stanford you'll be able to find that wherever you found this podcast and of course we'll also link to it on our website which is demystifying.uoregon.edu in the meantime it just remains for me to thank once more my guest today mandy jenkins until next time thanks for listening If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out another from the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication. The Listener's Podcast is a show about the craft and power of listening. We talk with media and communication experts, thought leaders, doers and innovators whose ideas can amplify the quality of our dialogue and interactions. Subscribe to the show anywhere where you find your other favourite podcasts and visit listenerspodcast.com to go deeper with each of our episode's show notes. Thanks for listening.